Welcome to another edition of the Scenic View Podcast. Jonathan Owens, Communications Director, and with me as always is Artis Watkins, the Executive Director. I like to say with me as always, it's kind of like a Wayne's World tribute. <laughs> for the for the listeners that remember Wayne's World. <laughs> Hi, John. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you, by the way? Doing Just, well, thanks. So we have another election special episode this week. We have Representative Wesley Harris coming in, who is running for state treasurer. He is endorsed by Impact. We recorded the interview last week, and I think it was a, a really good interview. I can tell you one that he's he's a smart man. <laughs> he knows his he's facts. He's a smart man, and the position is as important as any position in state government if you're a state employee or a retiree. Yeah, I didn't know that until I started working here, just how important the state treasurer's office was. I think I remember the first few years, I was like, why are all these people talking about the state treasurer's office so much here? But it is amazing what all that office touches, the retirement system, the health plan for 750,000 people in the state. That's just a very important job for the state employee. With just the retirement plan, one person controls by themselves more money than all 171 legislators, actually three times the money. Yeah. Maybe four at this point. Then all 170 legislators and the governor. Mm -hmm. I said 171 legislators, but I meant 170 legislators and the governor at the end of the day, all the way in at some point on the budget. It's like $120 billion pension fund. That's got to be like a GDP of a mid-sized country somewhere. I think it's the 16th largest (laughs) public pool of money in the world the last time I heard. And these are big shoes that anybody who wins is trying to step into. Yeah. You know, Dale Falwell has been the treasurer for state employees and retirees. He has fought for them in a way no one ever, ever has. And so it's big shoes to fill. Yeah. Scenic has a reputation for holding treasurers accountable, too. And Absolutely. Um, I guess the first six or so years I was here, we did that. We did a lot of that. And we did it with Falwell, too. It's just that we came out on his side on a lot of things because he was willing to listen to us. Well, we came us. out on his side because he was doing the things we had been asking his predecessors to do mm-hmm. in terms of transparency, accountability, and not having employees and retirees pay for everything. If something's going to go up in costs, everybody just looked to the employees and the retirees in the past. Oh, well, this is going to affect your benefits. He's the first person that really made us feel like they understood. That's ridiculous. There was no one asking the big industries, Wall Street or big healthcare or anybody like that to share in any of the sacrifice. So anyway, it's big shoes somebody's trying to step into. And trying to fill those shoes is uh, Wesley Harris. It's a Democratic nominee for this race. He was endorsed by impact. I think we get a, get into that a little bit. We have Mark Dearman on as well on this interview to explain a little bit about our process. He's our statewide impact chair. Yeah, and it was a unanimous endorsement by the PAC. So it's an interesting interview, and I think that you'll get more insight into why the PAC unanimously chose Representative Harris. One of our first questions out the gate was, how, how are you different from Dale, or what, what do you disagree with Dale? On? Right. I mean, like, what has Treasurer Falwell done you agree with, and what would you do differently? And that was fascinating. Honestly, because there wasn't much at all that he indicated he would do differently, which I guess makes sense because that's probably why the PAC loved him so much when they interviewed him. Yeah, he seemed very positive about Dale's time as treasurer. I know he mentioned a few things that he was concerned about, but overall, it sounded to me like he wanted to keep business as usual, but we'll see. It remains to be seen. So let's listen to Representative Wesley Harris, candidate for state treasurer. (music) 
so we're joined by Mark Dearman, who is our state impact chair, and Artis Watkins, of course. And with us today is Representative Wesley Harris, who is running for state treasurer. Mark, you wanted to talk a little bit about why impact has endorsed Representative Harris? But for anybody who's listening, is interested in public employees, what is yeah. impact? Impact is the Employees Political Action Committee. We endorse candidates for the legislative, for council of state and other races. And one of the things that makes impact very unique is that we are nonpartisan. We endorse candidates, not party. We're looking for candidates to support issues important to state employees, retirees, and other working families just like ours. And uh, in, in 2020, impact was named the second largest pack in North Carolina. So we're a real player out there. So the treasurer race, we typically do interviews for our endorsements. And this year we had four of the five candidates running for state treasurer that agreed to interview. And we had a chance to interview all four of them by Zoom. And we were very impressed with the candidate we endorsed. He had an unanimous endorsement. Representative Harris is a sitting legislator, so he's had a lot of experience in state government. He knows how the state health plan works, how the pension system works, and all these other things that are important to us. He got the unanimous endorsement of the PAC because of his background. Background, and we're looking forward to putting him in the treasurer's office come November. All right. And it is true that impact does get a lot. I know that it's very popular when we're at polling places. If you have a card from impact, what people find interesting, even if they're not a public employee, that's a bipartisan card. It's a nonpartisan card. And people from every end of the political spectrum make these decisions together. And people desperately wanted those palm cards. So I think if you're unaffiliated out there, be listening because impact tends to come up with candidates that just represent North Carolina. That's why your success rate in endorsements, I think, has been so high as a pack. Yep. Over 80% of our, our endorsed candidates typically win. And believe it or not, 93% of Senate members at least voted in 2020, and we're hoping to have at least that many this year. Well, that number, that percentage of the endorsed candidates winning means you're talking to real North Carolina. That's what's happening in this pack. Members are making those decisions from all over North Carolina. That's your fingers on the pulse. That's great. Okay. So do you want to move on yes. to the we're tough grilling? of our, of our <laughs> candidate. We're not very, we're not mean or anything. So, so, Representative Harris, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and why you're running for treasurer. Yeah, no, it's first of all, it's great to be with y'all. And and thank y'all so much for, for y'all support. Like you said, I'm ecstatic to have y'all support because y'all have such a great track record, particularly with the treasurers, because you look at the two constituencies of the treasurer, it's teachers and it's state employees. And so get state employees on board, you're on your way. So, yeah, been, been about my background. Like Mark said, I'm currently serving my third term in the state legislature. I was elected back in 2018 from South Charlotte. So I represent the Ballantyne area of Charlotte, which is right on the edge of Union County and, and South Carolina. But I'm from rural North Carolina originally. So I, I was born in Alexander County. My mom was a lifelong public school teacher. So very familiar with the plight of state employees and how things have changed over recent years. My dad was a local banker. And so, you know, as I always say, destined to run for treasure, put a, yeah. put a, put a banker and a state employee together and you got the, uh, you got the treasure. The job. ultimate treasure yeah. candidate. And, and so, yeah, you know, everything I am is because of my public education. And the fact we had a we had a state government that invested in me and invested in our communities and ended up going to Carolina for for undergrad, major in economics, and then went down to Clemson, got my PhD in economics with a focus in public finance, okay. which, you know, that kind of shaped my my view of why I wanted to study economics of, you know, of understanding what role the government has on our lives and what role the government should have on our lives. And so since I've been in the legislature, I've really been one of the key lead Democrats on all finance and, and economic issues and 
And so, you know, dealing with the pension plan, dealing with the state health plan, those are a lot of issues that have been coming up. And so I don't think there's any elected Democrat, at least in, in the state government, that understands the state's finances better than we do. And, and I've seen how, how powerful the treasurer's office is and some of the tough decisions we're going to have to be making the next couple of years. And knew we needed someone to be a true advocate for the people of North Carolina and the state employees of North Carolina. So, and so I'm running for state treasurer. And so I'm very excited about what we're going to be able to accomplish, not only this year through the campaign, but once we get into office next year. I wonder, I want to ask you this because you are your own man, so Mm -hmm. nobody's going to compare you forever, but it would not be us if we didn't. Obviously, as a a group, the State Employees Association has really loved having Dale Mm -hmm. Falwell as treasurer. We've loved his focus on the members of the plans of the retirement system and the health plan. What do you think y'all have in common and how might you differ? Yeah, no, that's that's a good question. So I think we have in common the idea to really look at what the problems are and, and what, the, what the issues are. Because again, when I talk to Dale, we agree on almost all, all the problems right. of, about everything. And uh, we differ slightly on on the solutions to, okay. to say problems. For instance, like with the, with the pension plan, I think our, our returns have lagged behind the last couple of years and we have to boost those up. And I don't think we have to get super aggressive. Like I said, you know, Dale's done a great job of limiting Wall Street management fees, which were super high for, for the pension plan. And we don't need to change that. And I don't think we need to, you know, rebuild, uh, rebuild the boat on that or, or rebuild the wheel. But we just have so much of it sitting in cash. And so I think if we have a bigger focus on investing that, again, like I think like 13% of our pension funds in cash and most other pension funds around the state have around like 2%. So you're for investing, but right. you're not necessarily for going back to a, the more traditional Right. Exactly. Because exactly. like you don't like the index funds do pretty well. And as long as you track the market, but we haven't been tracking the market simply because we just have so much of ours in cash. And so I think if we just put more of that portfolio into into the market, we can get better returns. And so it's really been hurtful this last few years when inflation's been so high, because this is the first time we've had significant inflation in about 40 years. And so having that so much of that portion in cash in recent years wasn't as bad of an issue because yeah, we kind of looked out in a right, way because inflation <laughs> inflation wasn't high and so you weren't losing that value. But in these last couple of years, when we've had seven eight percent inflation, even this year, it's probably still going to be around four five percent inflation. It's just the opportunity cost of of holding it is just changed that calculus a little bit more. And so we got to be receptive of that and do what we can to make sure that we protect the value and make sure we get the returns that we got to get. Gotcha. Um, How are you similar or different? on the issue of healthcare in general and specifically the state health plan. You know, with that one, the the big thing is, you know, going after the pharmaceutical companies and the hospitals to get that hardcore negotiation to to get the prices down. Cuz in, you know, How do you do that though? I mean, they band together like a brick wall. And and you know, it, it's hard, but we have in our health plan 750,000 folks. And so that's it's a big bargaining power like again, with with this Wilgovi thing, by us not covering that, a bunch of state employees are going to not benefit from that. But then also, if we don't cover it, then they're not going to buy it. And the pharmaceutical company is not going to benefit from that either. And so they're losing a lot of money that too. And so bringing that bargaining power to the table, I, th- I think is critical. And I, I think I think Dale's done a great job of that, of showing that we're not going to just take their terms as are. Because uh, we've got to show that we are we will negotiate and we will walk away from it if, if they don't come to the well, table. Well, it's because, right. do you think it's sustainable? I've not run across a healthcare economist who thinks it's... You know, 
That's a complicated question because I think it's the current system's not sustainable anyway. Like, you know, BC is one of the biggest problems. And so, you know, treating that and that's what like these are wonder drugs. Like they have shown to actually help people lose weight and keep it off. And that will almost certain lower healthcare costs in the future, which, again, that's one of the big rising costs of what we have right now is that we have such a big vacancy rate for state employment that our risk pool is getting older and it's getting sicker. Yeah. And so that's rising a lot of those costs. And so the only way to lower healthcare costs across the board is basically lowering that risk pool. And so increasing overall wellness, doing what we can for preventative care and focusing on preventative care and getting younger people to become state employees. Now, I'm going to push back in. a little bit yeah. and see what you say, because our members have heard so much about this over the years. We've been told, I don't know how many times, you need to be more well as a group. You're just a sick group. And the fact of the matter is, it's not true. The last empirical data I think I saw on it was actually Adam Linker and Adam Searing uh-huh. way back in the day. But they pulled data that showed we were literally, as a group, no less healthy than any other PPO at that time in the Southeast. Mm-hmm. But we were being told by the legislature and the board of the health plan at that time, that's what it was. What I'm wondering is if the costs for everything mm-hmm. healthcare related, it, again, in this whole country. Right. But the health plan being pool of government money, right. it's it's kind of ne- neglected even more or taken advantage of even mm-hmm. more. We, we can make everybody a lot more well. Right. And it's still the costs are still going to go up. Right. And you're right. And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that state employees are less well than other groups. It's across the board. Like that's that's true. And so it's it's competition and it's lower in that risk pool. And so that's where we got to push back a lot more against a lot of the hospital consolidations. Like you said, banding together of having UNC Health exempt from antitrust laws in North Carolina is just going to exacerbate it. And so, you know, some of the reform of certificate of need, I hope is going to help. And then some of the increase in Medicaid expansion. I I think that's the wild card that I hope is going to happen because it's uncompensated care. Like that's what's driving a lot of particularly just normal health insurance. And the fact that we're getting seven hundred thousand more people on Medicaid and so that they are able to get that preventative care. Because right now you got all these people, they basically their primary care physician was the emergency room and they never went unless something went bad because they cut a court and they didn't have insurance. And so having them able to have steady insurance and focus on that preventative care lowers that uncompensated care, which can hopefully pass some savings on to people if there's competition. And then it's pharmaceuticals and trying to deal with that. And, you know, it's tough to deal with that on the state level. Like it's it's a national thing. It's an international thing. Because at the end of the day, the U.S. is subsidizing every other country, Everyone. every other country around the world, because we're the only country that pharmaceutical companies make money in. Uh, Before I came back to North Carolina, I worked uh, I worked with Ernst & Young up in Boston, and I did international tax consulting. And I worked with a lot of pharmaceutical companies, valuing their intellectual ooh, okay, property. So for, you know the real deal. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and I'll, I'll tell you, it costs billions upon billions upon billions of dollars to get drugs to market. And a lot of that is our FDA regulations, which is good. Drugs on the market, we get drugs that aren't going to kill people and have yeah. nasty side effects. It's very important, the work they do. Right. And it, it's outrageously expensive, but we're the only country that they make profits off of. Yes. And so if there is anything, and I, I you know, some of our federal legislators are listening to this because that's, that's where we have to tackle it. Uh, it has to be like like the rest of the country, rest of the world has to pay their fair share. Well, and this is why we love you. Yeah. 
if they're not willing to do it, then it has to be done through tax policy and tariff policy because we cannot continue to foot the bill. We get some benefits in the sense that it doesn't matter what other countries need. They're only going to invest in what, because innovation is critical and you have to have that profit mechanism to have that innovation. But we can't be the only country in the world that they're making money off of. And so on that level, it's it's got to be federal. But, you know, on ours, like hopefully, like I said, we're the first state health plan to pull out of the GLP-1s. And so yeah. hopefully that'll send some signals to other states that, listen, if, if we're willing to stand tough, then they will have to come and negotiate because if they start losing money, they will change things pretty, pretty quickly. The economics of it just won't make sense otherwise. And so I hope it'll bring them to the table because we got until April 1st until That's it finally does. Yeah. And so I'm hopeful we, we can still kind of come to the table and come up with a deal, but it's... You're hopeful this will not be your problem. <laughs> right, 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 right. I oh, wouldn't blame oh, you. Hey, if it's not this problem, it's going to be 10 more That's that, that are going to pop up by, by next January. And, and I think, you know, I think that's one of my comparative advantages for this job of, like I said, understanding the industry and understanding what, what their profit motives are, what they can take, what they can't take, and being able to go in there just being like, all right, this is outrageous. Like, we can both benefit from this in, in a much more equitable fashion where we can all benefit for it. And we just got to, but we do have to, we do have to pull a hard bargain because that's the only way we're going to be able to get any type of results we need. I'm smiling because I saw artist's face light up through all that it did. conversation. <laughs> it did. I mean, it's well, my favorite topic here. It's it's so <laughs> serious. And we've been watching, like I think a lot of the country has, with Senator Sanders and the Health mm-hmm. Committee. And gosh, Ro Khanna last week was just a hero around all of these ridiculous prices that we're right. paying, like you said, to subsidize the very important research that's being well, done. And, and, you know, it's, as I like to say, trickle down is 100 percent true in the sense that all costs will always be passed on to consumers. That That's what companies are. That's what corporations right. are. They're passed through entities. The only way savings gets passed on, which, again, that's what we've tried to say with, oh, well, if we cut taxes, those savings will get passed on. The only way that gets passed on is if there's competition. And we have there are just too many sectors in our economy now that are just absent of competition. And that's got to be the critical piece. Like if we want capitalism to survive, we want our economy to survive, then it's got to be, it's got to be competition. We got to be, we got to be fostering competition in any avenue that we can, including in healthcare, because that's the only mechanism. It's either that or you're going to have excessive, have to have excessive government regulation dictating what prices are going to be. And that never works out well. Well, no, right uh, now at, the government, the day, right yeah. now the government's right. regulating that right. we can't even bargain with folks. Right. Uh, and like that's, that's protecting we, them. We've allowed this corporate consolidation so we right. basically just get monopoly power. And so then you have monopolies versus government and trying to decide what the prices are. And that takes away the whole price mechanism, which is what drives innovation, drives everything. So we got to bring that back. But to do that, you have to have that level of competition. So we got to push back hard against so much of this corporate consolidation in the healthcare industry so that we have that le- level of competition. So a- as we look forward of kind of long reaching policy on the state level, and again, that's mostly something that needs to be done on the federal level. But that's got to be, you know, I tell people a lot, like, the moment that we're in right now, if we're not taking campaign lines verbatim from Teddy Roosevelt, like th- that's the moment we're in. Of uh, we're, we're in a we're in a second gilded age of the corporate consolidation's too big, and we got to bring competition back. You got to start busting up some of these trusts because that's and we've reached a point now where, especially after COVID, where it's shifted much more towards labor, which is good. And, you know that, that's how the pendulum swings, and so we have an opportunity to really use that political power to make some real far-reaching changes to make our entire economic system and work better for everybody who's who's involved in it. So, I mean, I know the treasurer's job has so much more yep. to it. And it sounds like, I mean, you said your father was a banker. Mm, I yep. know you would have the banking. Yep. You have banking, you have local government. The treasurer's got 
it's astounding to me. Right. It indirectly hits almost every every form. And that's why, you know, when people are like, how are you campaigning? I was like, well, you know, you can campaign on anything. It's not just state employees. Like you, you know, you look around North Carolina, 90 counties over the last year saw their property taxes increase. Wow. And they saw their property taxes increase because the state's pushing more and more responsibility onto our local governments. Mecklenburg County, for instance, where I live, over 20% of our $2 billion county budget is spent on operating expenses the state should be covering. A lot of that salary supplements, like Charlotte has to hire a lot of their own assistant DAs because the state doesn't fund them. The only way we fund it is sales tax and property tax on local government. And you can't th- change sales tax without the General Assembly letting you. And so it's all property tax. Again, when it comes to the local government commission, any debt that any local government issues has to be approved by the local government commission, which is chaired by the treasurer. And so if we have some forward looking kind of aspects of like what our state should be doing in terms of these investments, that can help alleviate so much. Because on the state level, like I said, you only have pretty much have one tax you can change on the local level, your property taxes. Right. State government has about six or seven different taxes, levers they can pull, and they can do it in a much more efficient manner. You got the income tax, you got the corporate tax, you got the franchise tax, you got the sales tax, you got the gas tax, you got sales and use taxes. And so you can have a much more efficient tax system, but we're not doing that. We're just kind of lowering everything. And so it ends up pushing it in mm-hmm. in the local manner, which that drives our urban rural divide in an area where, you know, the state government's the only one that can do it. Because Charlotte, for instance, in Mecklenburg and Wake County, they're growing. And so while they're having to do a lot, since they're growing, we're having actually having less property tax increase than a lot of these rural counties because they simply don't have the tax base that they need. And so you're seeing them not able to be able to finance new schools. Yeah, they don't have a well to go to anymore. Right. Right. And so they don't have a way to finance school capital needs. You know, we talk about Leandra funding a lot for, for mm-hmm. public education. That is dwarfed by the capital needs for public education across the state. And when you're not able to have, you know, high quality buildings for your kids to go to school. Like, yeah. Again, if, if your schools are falling down, if your hospitals are closing, and if you don't have access to internet, your county's not growing, it's dying. And right. too many parts of our state are being left behind. And I think you're seeing that seeing that crisis. And the number one employer in 61 of our counties are state employees. Either most of them is the school system or prison in, in a handful of counties. But yeah. yeah, like they're the biggest block of employees in most of the counties. And so when we don't invest in them, that's hurting the economy in, in those areas. And we're not able to attract the people to actually bring that economic development well, that can that, actually keep things going. That makes me want to pick your brain as an economist one oh, more yeah. time. So over the years, we have heard that retirees not getting a COLA was impacting the entire economy mm-hmm. because of the money that retirees was. We've heard from from some other folks and we agree with it, that mm-hmm. if those retirees were getting a cost of living adjustment, they could put that money back. They're oh, yeah. going most likely to put that money in the economy. They're not going to likely put it in, in an investment somewhere. Right. They're going to spend it. Right. So w- what are your theories on, A, is that true in your mind? And B, if it is, how do we get back to having a cost of living? So if you don't think retirees spend their money, go to eastern North Carolina and western North Carolina. All the population growth in those areas are retirees. And, and they're spending that money. You know, my, my parents just moved down to uh, to Brunswick County from from Ardell County for their their retirement. And yeah, they, they they spend it like it's it's their retirement because most of them are living you know paycheck to paycheck. Particularly state employee, like the the bargain you make with the public sector is you're never going to make a ton of money while you're working, right? But you're going to get great benefits. You're going to get great health care, and you're going to get a retirement. 
retirement. He said, my dad was a banker. And even when I was growing up, he said, thank God for your mom's pension and health benefits when she retired. So she was grandfathered in. So she got retirement benefits because it was better than anything at that price point you could have gotten from the private market. And that's why people chose to to be state employees. And that's why people chose to work for the government, because you would get those benefits. And if we're not able to give those, not only is it less money for them to actually spend in retirement, but it kills us on recruitment because you can go to the private sector and make more money today and be able to afford the same level of benefits that you couldn't. So I think it's critical at making sure we can do whatever we can. That's why it's so important to, you know, invest the pension fund in a way to get these returns so that we can be able to get this cost of living adjustments. Because if not, not only would they spend it, like they're losing value now because inflation is going so high. And so we got to be able to fulfill our promises because if we don't do that, then Current people see that. They're like, oh, they're not fulfilling the promises now, and it's just going to continue to exasperate the problem going forward. And so we got to, again, we invest in it today. It is so much cheaper than having to deal with it on, on the tail end. And so I hope we can get more support from the General Assembly, both on the health plan side and the retirement side. If we just get a little bit more support from them on the front end, it can pay so much dividends going forward. Because, again, we can focus more on that preventative care. Do you think your relationships there would help you? I, hope so. I, I think so, because, you know, I got pretty well respected on both sides. And what I always loved about public finance is it's a math problem. And a lot of the politics goes out the door when, when it's a math problem. Like, you know, in finance the last couple of times, I mean, we, we get a little, you know, heated over some of the tax cut policy just because philosophical differences of, of what the government should or shouldn't do. But at the end of the day, like, you can't argue over the math. The math is what the math is. And so you can bring people together over that because particularly a lot of these rural counties, they know they're being left behind. They know they need these level of investments. And so if we're smarter about how we finance these things, then we can not only all benefit for it, but we can actually see taxes even lower on a greater scale because you can see those property taxes I mean, start to lower. I am. I'm an English major, but <laughs> I'm going to tell you that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it's just logic. Yeah. Well, you know, like like I said, particularly for like the lower income folk, most people in North Carolina actually don't end up paying income tax. Like we have a very high standard deduction, which is great. But that means when you have income tax cuts, they're not getting those benefits for it. I'll say that no one's ever gone broke paying income tax because you have to earn it before it can right. tax. Yeah. But what's happening, particularly in a lot of these gentrified areas where property values are skyrocketing, their tax bill is rising much higher than their income. And you get to the point where you're pricing people out of their homes. Oh, yeah. And particularly... If you know, for people that the old Hilton had problem in South Carolina. Right. Well, and it's been, you know, their homes have been in their family for generations. That's the only wealth generating asset a lot of these working class have. And so price them out of there when we're not building new homes, then they're going to lose that only asset. And so that's another thing that helps the economy because we got to focus on making sure people can save and so that they do have that financial independence. And that actually eases them from other government programs in the future, We can, which again can save us money across the board. And so there's a lot of stuff we can do if we're willing to invest on the front end. And it just, it's, it's pennies on the dollar for what the cost would be if we don't do that. And people are finally starting to see that in their day-to-day lives. Like they're seeing the fact that a lot of our government services aren't being offered the way that they should. And so that gives us a political idea to be like, okay, well, now that they're seeing their quality of life is being impacted by not having a fully staffed state employee sector. And so we can use that to hold our elected officials accountable, making sure that they force and be like, listen, the first thing y'all got to make sure is that we're paying our state employees so we can recruit them because there is a baseline of services people need from the government and they want from the government. And when those aren't being provided, that's when we have the opportunity to be like, listen, this is what happens when you don't invest in our people. 
And so we can use that to kind of drive what I hope is going to happen in the next in the next legislative session when we get really serious about making sure that we can start solving this hiring crisis. One hundred percent. Is there anything else you would want people to know before they go to the ballot box? I think we're going to be facing some tough challenges in the next couple of years, and we need we need folks that have a long term view about what it means for having a government that works for everybody. Like I said, I'm the only candidate for this race who's lived in rural North Carolina, suburban North Carolina, and urban North Carolina, and so I know how important it is. And you know, you look at the political polarization around the country; it's an urban divide issue. It's urban versus rural, and North Carolina is the only state in the country that. That matches those demographics like, like the rest of the country. And so if you want to fix the if you want to fix the politics in America, if you want to fix our economy, like North Carolina is the test case, like we, we can figure it out here. And if we can come together, then, you know, that's it. And you, you need elected officials, particularly statewide, that understand the symbiotic nature of urban versus rural areas of mm-hmm. like I, I say this in Charlotte, like and I say to the elected official in Charlotte, like we need to be the ones championing rural investment because most of the economic ac- activity are happening in the urban areas. It's happening in in the Mecklenburgs. It's happening in the Wake Counties. But for that to continue, you need investments from the state. And to get investments from the state, you need votes from the state. And so you need rural votes. North Carolina has more rural voters than any state other than Texas. A majority of people in North Carolina do not live in an urban area. And so if you want their support to continue to grow our economic powerhouse that is North Carolina, we have to be willing to invest in those communities. Because what happens to one of us happens to the other. If, If we leave rural North Carolina behind, they're not going to invest in urban North Carolina. And if we don't invest in urban North Carolina, we're not going to have the resources to invest in rural North Carolina. Yeah. So we're all tied together. And so that that's the view I take of, of state government and the importance it has in kind of driving us forward. And I, I hope the listeners agree with that, <laughs> yeah, but because that's what we need. And I think that there is ways to pull that together. Because if you look at the polarization, you know, polarization is not necessarily bad. Geographic polarization is what's the killer. And if you have Republicans that don't compete in urban areas and Democrats that don't compete in rural areas, nothing's going to solve itself. And so you need people willing to go to every single corner of this state and have a message about having government that invests in its people. And I think that's something that can resonate. We're all going to benefit for, and I think you can save a lot of the problems that's wrong with our politics right now. I feel like he paid more attention in econ 10 than I did. (laughs) Yeah. Opportunity cost was the only piece that I was like, I remember that from the very first one. That's the second time we've talked about (laughs) econ 10 on this podcast. Yes, it is. Well, are you a Tar Heel or a Clemson Tiger? Since Well, you know, I used to say I had a nice basketball team and a football team, but (laughs) this year was kind of, kind of flipped. This, this was the first year I was actually pulling for Carolina in football and Clemson won. And then Clemson won in basketball this year too, just a couple weeks ago. But but I, I I'm excited about the the Tar Heel basketball team this year, and so I'm I'm a Tar Heel through and through. You know, your heart heart lies with with your own. Well, since you're a statewide candidate, we'll ask you the hard question: Eastern or Western barbecue? Uh, well, you know, I grew up in Alexander and Ironville County, oh, and okay. so I will I, I will always go with the uh, with, with the with the Western barbecue. Oh, we need to. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, hey, you, you got, got, got to go with got to go with what you're raised on. Yeah, that's yeah. right. I prefer Western too, but I don't know. But I think you're a, an Eastern fan. I mean. Oh, you're from Texas. I mean, the first Never. twelve, yeah, the first twelve years of my life were in Texas. So, <laughs> but to be honest, I do prefer the barbecue up here. I hope nobody in my family listens <laughs> oh, to this, man. but yeah, I do prefer the barbecue up here. But I'm not going to say which one. I'm not crazy. <laughs> 
Well, Mark, do you have anything to add? Yes, I think you've got a really good chance to see why we endorse Wesley Harris for treasurer. Now it's up to you folks. Uh, early voting starts Thursday the 15th. Thursday the 15th, and then election days on March the 5th. I want to beat our 93% voting rate this year. So uh, get out and vote and tell your family and friends about Wesley and our other candidates and get them to go out and vote too. Thank you so much for coming in. Yeah, no, thank you all for having me. Well, that was a great interview. Thanks for listening. And just remember that the primary election is coming up. Early voting starts February 15th and runs through March 2nd. The primary election day is March 5th. You need to be registered as a party or an unaffiliated to vote in that race. So please get out to vote and to make your voices heard.